This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. Today, we're Welsh and we're Irish. And we're American and a fantasy. Hi, I'm Jerry Kowarski. And I'm Bob Wilcox. Come with us to the theater and we'll tell you what we've seen from our two seats on the aisle. Welcome to Two on the Isle, the podcast, produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Isle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently on the internet. This podcast is from episode number 527 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, May 9th, 2019, and features reviews of the following plays, Salt, Root, and Row at Upstream Theater, Translations at Black Mirror Theater, Miss Saigon at the Fox Theater, Biloxi Blues at Clayton Community Center, A Midsummer Night's Dream at RS Theatrics and Blind Pigs, Nice Work If You Can Get It at the Kirkwood Theater Guild, Godspell at St. Louis University, and Over the Tavern at the Theater Guild of Webster Groves. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Jerry Kowarski. Mena Hopkins and Gareth Rowlands are trying to figure out a way to signal each other secretly at the start of Salt, Root, and Row. The play by Tim Price is the current offering at Upstream Theater. What Mena and Gareth need to signal about is not clear. What is clear is that Mena is distraught over something, Gareth's uniform suggests that it must be a matter for the police. The tension is palpable when Men and Gareth try to pass the time playing a game called Guess Who. The situation does not become clear until the two remaining characters arrive, Mena's mother, Annist Owen, and Anna's sister, Yola Hughes. You can't tell from our video, but the script specifies that Annist and Yola are identical twins. Yola had sent a suicide note to Mena, triggering Mena's visit, and a police search, including helicopters. To keep Yola from harming herself, Mena becomes her caretaker. It is not an easy role to play. Yola has a tumor in dementia. She can become very agitated, and at times she no longer recognizes Mena. Yola understands the difficulty of her predicament for others. She says of her tumor, It's bloody miserable, God knows it is, but I'm glad it's me because it must be hell the other way round. The play is a journey about aging and ailing for both the characters and the audience. The road is difficult, but by the end the destination reached in the play is one that I was ready for because of what I had seen. Salt Root and Row is receiving its U.S. premiere in the upstream staging, which is a co-production with Stages Repertory Theater of Houston, Texas, Its artistic director, Ken McLaughlin, directed this production, and a stalwart of the Houston Company, Sally Edmondson, plays Enest. She is part of a distinguished, totally cohesive ensemble, including Donna Weinstein as Yola, Amy Louie as Mena, and Eric Dean White as Gareth. The play is set on the coast of Wales. A friend who has spent much time there confirmed for me the authenticity of the Welsh accents, which were coached by Teresa Doggett, and the authenticity of the whitewashed stone cottage in the work by scenic designer Michael Heil and scenic artist Aaron Knadler. I did not need anyone else's confirmation of the emotional authenticity of 
Yola's disorientation under the influence of her dementia, Anna's devotion to her twin sister, Mena's realization that all the love in the world can't change an impossible situation, and Garrus' endurance of an unconventional marriage. I could give many other examples of the excellence of this cast. Michelle Friedman Siler's costumes, Steve Carmichael's lighting, Anthony Berea's sounds and compositions, Rachel Tibbetts' props, and Lucy Garlick's wigs are worthy of the play and this production. Yeah, well, I'm glad they did it. We got to see it. I, I'm not sure I liked it as much as you did. Uh, I, I couldn't quite understand why there wasn't more medical attention given to this person. I know she was taking some kind of medication, but still, sometimes I just uh, had trouble going with it. Well, it wasn't about how she was being treated medically. It was about how she was being treated emotionally. True. Playwright Brian Friel probably could have chosen almost any moment in the fraught joint histories of Ireland and England and found something comparable to what happens in his play Translations. He chose 1833, a time when England was securing its rule of Ireland by, among other things, creating new maps of the land, anglicizing place names, either by substituting English sounds for Irish sounds or by actually translating the names into English. This is then another of the many moments in which the Irish are gradually mixing their own culture with the English, either by yielding to the English or resisting it, sometimes violently. Friel sets his play in an Irish head school in the village of Ballybeg. The name in Irish means simply small town. Head schools with instruction in Irish dotted Ireland but were being replaced by the English national schools with instruction in the language of the conqueror. The English gave head schools that name because their poverty made their construction seem little better shelter than crouching under a hedge. Poverty captured in the jumble of materials in the set by George Compass and director Madeline Finn in the recent production by the Black Mirror Theater. Hedgemaster Hugh, in his late 60s and ever well lubricated with the local water of life, teaches Greek and Latin, as well as Irish, and English, too. Charles E. Winning endowed him with a slightly shabby authority befitting his station. His students know Greek and Latin heroes and divinities as well as anything in their Irish heritage. Jimmy Jack Cassie, though a contemporary of Hugh's, and fluent in both Greek and Latin, still comes to the school daily to contemplate marriage to one of the Greek goddesses. Daniel Higgins captured well the character's charming eccentricities. Hugh's son, Manus, lame in one leg since infancy, also teaches in the school, and Joseph Garner displayed his strong determination. We see it in his successful effort to teach Sarah, a young woman with a severe speech defect, to say her name. She, too, was determined in Janine Norman's lovely performance. But Manus' romantic desires focus on Mare, a young milkmaid who studies English in the school so she can emigrate to America. She, however, responds not to Manus, but to the English Lieutenant Yoland, attached to the map-making brigade and fascinated by all things Irish, especially Mare. <laughs> Carly Uding and Jesse O'Friel made of their budding romance a touching and lovely scene in which neither speaks the other's language. Everyone speaks English in translation, 
but playwright Friel, director Finn, Irish language coach Dennis Corcoran, and the entire cast made clear which language each character was speaking at each moment. William Nolan was a brusque and stern English Captain Lancy. Maya Kelch's Bridget and Duncan Phillips's Dolty, both students in the school, flashed moments of resistance to the occupation. Schoolmaster Hugh's second son, Owen, returned from six years in Dublin and now working as a translator for the English, provided Sean Michael with a multifaceted, fascinating character, and Michael responded with the richest performance I have seen from him. Catherine Hopkins designed the period costumes, Claire Fairbanks the lights, and director Finn surmounted the multiple problems with the Zach Theater in creating a splendid production. Yes, they did, and, and that love scene you mentioned really was wonderful. Wasn't that lovely? Yeah. In my most recent review of Puccini's Madame Butterfly, I said I dislike few characters in opera more than B.F. Pinkerton, the American naval officer who has no compunctions about betraying the woman he married in Japan because his marriage contract allowed him to do so. Chris Scott is Pinkerton's counterpart in Miss Saigon, the musical based on Madame Butterfly by Claude Michel Schoenberg, Alan Boublil, and Richard Maltby Jr. Chris is separated from his beloved Kim, not by a cavalier choice, but by the fog of war at the end of America's involvement in Vietnam. But Chris is the one who gives up on the couples ever reuniting. Kim never does. In the musical as in the opera, an American serviceman's faithlessness is the source of the tragedy. This is not a story that I warm to. I was very impressed, however, with the production values of the most recent national tour of Miss Saigon, which just finished a two-week run at the Fox. This production was based on the 2017 Broadway revival directed by Lawrence Conner with musical staging and choreography by Bob Avian. Their work and the excellent performances made the action clear even when the sound in the theater was congested. The sound seemed better in the second act, but I still wish this sung-through musical had the super titles that are common now in opera houses. Emily Batista as Kim and Anthony Festus Chris had chemistry that established their love without the need for words. Red Concepcion was utterly shameless as the character known as the engineer, an unscrupulous realer dealer. His big number, The American Dream, was a compelling indictment of materialism in Concepcion's performance. The supporting players and the ensemble were all first-rate. The synergy of the scenic design and the lighting cleverly made it possible to change the look of the set without moving much scenery. The design concept was by Adrian Vaux, the production design by Tody Driver and Matt Kinley, and the lighting by Bruno Poet. Luke Hall's projections and Mick Potter's sound helped make this helicopter scene memorable. Adrian Neofitu designed the costumes for a production that consistently delivered the goods. Yeah, I, I really liked some of the choreography, and especially the one militaristic scene of the uh, of the now Vietnamese, not just North Vietnamese army. Um, yeah, as you say, the story is not one. I like this one better than Madame Butterfly, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear some of the music.
You can follow all things Two on the Isle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Isle and liking the page. And you can be the first to see the reviews on YouTube by subscribing to the Two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell. Again, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching for Two on the Isle. Neil Simon, already famous as the master of comic situation and dialogue, became more serious when he wrote the Eugene Trilogy. He based the three plays on his own life, first Brighton Beach memoirs about his adolescence in Brooklyn, Biloxi Blues about basic training in the World War II Army, and Broadway Bound about his development as a writer for radio and television. These plays are funny, but they take seriously all the questions and problems his young protagonist deals with as he's growing up. Biloxi Blues may go the deepest, even though Eugene Morris Jerome grows more by observing than acting in it than he does in the other plays. But Simon has ample material in the barracks with half a dozen draftees responding each in his own way to this new, challenging, confusing experience. Especially Arnold Epstein, who is really the central character in Biloxi Blues, an intellectual, Epstein immediately clashes with the sadistic training methods of drill sergeant Merwin J. Toomey. The conflict climaxes in a private confrontation between Epstein and a drunken Toomey who pulls a pistol on Epstein and then orders Epstein to arrest him for violating army regulations. The scene crackles with Michael Bouchard as Epstein and Jeff Struckhoff as Toomey in the current production of the Clayton Community Theater. Along the way, Eugene, maybe still too much the adolescent in Patrick Blanner's consistent, committed, soft-spoken performance, loses his virginity, meets the perfect girl, deals with anti-Semitism, and discovers the dangers lurking in his planned profession as a writer when his mates discover his descriptions of them in the journal he keeps. Jack Lehman's Joseph Wykowski, a big, tough, born soldier, rethinks his anti-Semitism. Sam Julemet's Roy Selridge loudly seconds Wykowski and calls to his mother in his sleep. Jeremy Schnelt's Donald Carney wants a triumphant recital in Carnegie Hall. Greg Savile's James Hennessy, a modest, quiet guy, gets in trouble. Annie Veluska plays the prostitute who gently initiates Eugene, and Amanda Crawford plays the perfect girl he meets at a USO dance. It's a very strong cast responding to Sam Hack's intelligent direction. Andrew and Zach Carey designed the set that the efficient crew quickly resets for multiple scenes, aided by Nathan Schrader's discreet lighting, Gene Heckman designed costumes, and director Hack the sound. With this production, I've completed the trilogy, but I can see Broadway bound again when Clayton does it next year. Uh, yes, that will be something to look forward to. I was really impressed with how much more mature the young men seemed in the final scene than they did at the start. Ah, good point. The production of A Midsummer Night's Dream at the end of April was supposed to be a part of Shake 38, the annual celebration of the Shakespeare canon coordinated since 2010 by Shakespeare Festival St. Louis. Shake 38 is on hiatus this year, but that didn't stop Blind Pigs and RS Theatrics. They had already lined up a venue for their production. They went ahead with it. This charming Midsummer Night's Dream was a Shake 38 production in everything but name. The festival set down only one rule for Shake 38. Make the play happen any way you see fit. Performances are limited only by one's imagination. 
Like many Shake 38 presenters, Blind Pigs and RS Theatrics took advantage of the special qualities of a venue that is not a theater. The Willie May Kerr Foundation's building in the near North Riverside neighborhood. Al's restaurant is the nearest landmark. The performance took place in six separate places in the building. None of them had theatrical lighting, but that didn't matter one bit. Action Set in the Woods was presented either outside, in the gardens or on the roof, or in the basement, where the lolly columns stood like lines of trees. The wind was high when Oberon first met up with Puck on the roof. Later, the Athenian youths chased one another on the roof in near total darkness. I was cold, but I appreciated the realism. At a Shake 38 production, you admire the ingenuity with which the play and the venue are accommodated to each other and the dedication of actors who maintain their concentration regardless of the conditions. John Wolber's adaptation of the script reduced the number of lines and characters in the play to a manageable level. The jovial depiction of Theseus and Apollyta by Dustin Allison and Stephanie Merritt fit well with their expanded roles. The passions of the Athenian youths were captured by Sophia Lydia's Hermia, Michael Lowe's Demetrius, Aaron Dodd's Lysander, and Rhiannon Sky Creighton's Helena. The conflict among the fairies had the appropriate edge thanks to Paige Russell Elias' Titania, Shane Signorino's Oberon, and Chrissy Watkins' Puck. Stephanie Kluba as Peas Blossom and Rosario Kelly as The Boy both added to the fun. If you want to find a Shakespearean precedent for the Shake 38 aesthetic, look no further than the Athenian artisans who put on the Pyramus and Thisbe play. Their thoroughly delightful contributions included Mark Kelly's Quince, Zach Farmer's Bottom, Casey Bowen's Flute, Ashley Netzhammer's Starveling, and Hire Brown's Snout and Danny Brown's Snug. Director Christina Rios had a very interesting interpretation of Thisbe's last speech. Mark Kelly provided the sound and the fight choreography. I miss Shake 38, and I'm glad Blind Pigs and RS Theatrics stepped into the breach. Yeah, it was uh, sort of fun. Odd place to be, hard to find down there in the riverfront, so I missed a little of it, but I enjoyed what was there. And I wish I had known that it was going to be outside earlier so I could have worn a warmer coat. Uh Playwright Joe Pietro grabbed the book by P.G. Wood, uh, Woodhouse and Guy Bolton for the 1926 musical OK, kept it in the Prohibition era with bootleggers heading the cast, added more music by George and Ira Gershwin, and came up with nice work if you can get it. DiPietro's revised plot is perhaps even less logical than the standard for 1920s musicals, but it fills the spaces between the Gershwin numbers, which are why we're there, with a screwball romance and comic potential. Potentials realized in the current production of the Kirkwood Theatre Guild. Evan Fornajan proves an excellent choice to play the oft-married Jimmy Wintard, who must marry again. This time someone his mother approves, or she'll disinherit him. His mother approves of his desperate choice. Janelle Gilbert Owens' avant-garde modern dancer Eileen Evergreen, so entranced by herself, she won't allow Jimmy to touch her until the knot is tied. He hopes it never gets tied. <laughs> Thanks to one of those improbable coincidences without which we could not have musical comedy, three bootleggers have stored 400 cases of gin in the basement of Jimmy's apparently vacant beach house. When the wedding party shows up, 
the bootleggers immediately disguise themselves as house servants. Cookie McGee becomes the butler, and Kent Koffel ascends the heights of the absurd with both body and voice. Jason Myers as Duke Mahoney, the pretend chef, also does amazing things, revealing a surprising talent for the best in physical comedy. Splendid Jacqueline Amber plays the head of the gang, Billy Bendix, who does pose as a maid, but mainly spends time alone with Jimmy as they, of course, discover that they are in love. Will Shaw is properly proper as Senator Max Evergreen, father of dancer and almost bride Eileen. The treat of the night enters with Kimmy Kid Booker with her amazing voice and comic skill as the senator's sister, Duchess Estonia Dulworth, stalwart supporter of Prohibition. Ken Lopinot's police chief Barry pursues bootleggers and laughs, getting the laughs. Andrea Brown's ditzy Jeannie Muldoon, one of the Kuros girls come to entertain at the wedding, thinks shy bootlegger Duke really is a Duke and determines to catch him. Enter imperious Maria Wilkin as Jimmy's mother, Millicent Winter, come not to enforce Jimmy's unwanted wedding to Eileen, but to save him from it and to welcome Billy into the family. Choreographer Laura Roth has given the chorus girls and Chief Barry's Vice Squad delightful choreography that they perform effortlessly to the sounds of musical director Sean Bippen and his tight orchestra. Ken Clark designed impressively ritzy sets with lighting by Stephanie Draper, amusing 20s frocks by Colleen Fornishon, and sound by J.D. Wade and Amanda Jackson. Kirkwood gives us a fine production of Nice Work, if you can get it, with great music and some other high spots. Uh, yes, that's all true. And, you know, we haven't seen this place since it came through on tour. I'm not sure why. Ah, well, I bet we'll see some more sometime. But let's hear some Gershwin music. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there, too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Isle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus, on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks at the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Isle. The Theater Department of St. Louis University recently presented Godspell in the revised version prepared for the 2011 Broadway revival. I saw the national tour based on that revival when it played at the Peabody Opera House. In this version, the followers of Jesus were no longer the troop of clowns in the original Godspell. I wrote at the time that I sensed no effort by the actors to establish an identity for themselves other than as performers. This was certainly not the case in the production at SLU, which is directed by Stephanie Tanil, and her deeply thought-out concept, the setting of Godspell was a music therapy group where all are welcome. In the opening Tower of Babel number, the performers captured the anxiety summoned up in college-aged people like themselves when they encounter competing philosophies of life. Some productions omit this scene. At SLU, it created a palpable sense of urgency about the character's need for an answer. Never before in my experience has the opening been so apt an introduction. 
The newly formed group then acts out parables from the Gospels under the direction of their leader. The playfulness and the personal touches in these episodes fit perfectly into the context of a music therapy session. So did the presence of musicians on stage. They were a part of the therapy and they took requests. The band played beautifully under music director John Garrett. The slew cast was excellent. Blake Howard was a charismatic leader as Jesus. Ross Rubright captured both the joyfulness of John the Baptist and the increasing discontent of Judas. The ensemble had great fun bringing the parables to life, and each member took full advantage of the opportunity to shine in an individual number. In alphabetical order, the performers were Haley Dirks Jackson, Learn Your Lessons Well, Gretchen Dudley and Bless the Lord, Jackson Gless and We Beseech Thee, Ryan Higgins and All Good Gifts, Reed McLean and Day by Day, Molly Meyer and Turn Back O Man, Mary Nink and By My Side, and Caleb Vetter in Light of the World. The exuberance of the characters was vividly reflected in Lou Bird's costumes and Samantha Gaetsch's choreography. Dan Giedemann's set design, David LaRosa's lighting, and Casey Hunter's sound together created a flexible environment that fit the changing requirements of the script. The needs of the ending were encompassed in ways that were unexpected but highly effective. The performance we saw ended with a heartfelt curtain speech suggesting that the bonding in this production wasn't just on stage. Yeah, it was uh, lovely that the young man uh, playing Jesus made that curtain speech, and uh, especially thanking the faculty members who'd helped along the way. Uh, let's hear some of the music from this production. Like Neil Simon, Tom Dudzik has written a trilogy about his early days. First comes Over the Tavern, currently at the Theatre Guild of Webster Groves. Unlike Simon's family, who are Jews in Brooklyn, Dudziks are Polish and Buffalo. Twelve-year-old Rudy suffers almost daily a meeting after school with sister Clarissa. He's due to be confirmed, but he can't seem to learn the catechism. Worse, he's beginning to reject the answers in the catechism and to make up his own, which are wildly different from the catechisms. He's even threatening not to be confirmed. That brings a visit by Sister Clarissa to the Pazinski's apartment located over the tavern run by Rudy's father. The visit does not go well, ending with a heart attack. Sister winds up in the hospital where she's visited by both Rudy and his father with surprises for both. Rudy's older brother and sister suffer their own adolescent traumas, both driven by newly raging hormones, 15-year-old Eddie sneaking in Playboy, 16-year-old Annie wanting boys to lust after her. 13-year-old Georgie is cognitively disabled, 
a joyful spirit and upsetting the family because he's learned a dirty word. Father Chet works too hard, worries about money, and takes out his down moods on the family. Mother Ellen somehow manages to keep trying to make everything better for everyone. She tries hard and sometimes succeeds. Tracy Murphy succeeds splendidly playing her, keeping play and family going. Patrick Ryan is stuck with playing Chet's bad moods, which he does well enough, though I know Ryan can do more given the chance. Declan Ryan has room to make Rudy bigger than he does, though he's sure we know what's going on in that bright mind. Andrea Jacobson does especially fine work in Annie's confessional scene with her mother, and Jimmy Wall nicely modulates Eddie's balancing immaturity and maturity. Henry Alverson charms, as he should, as Georgie. Pepe Parshall fully embodies every Catholic boy's nightmare of a nun, then carefully shows another side when that is what others need. Warren Frank set gives us the all-purpose room in the Pazinski apartment with desk for school, prayer bench for church, and bed for hospital when needed. Director Debbie Love designed lights, Barb Mulligan and the cast, the costumes, and Mark Mobeck the sound. Love's direction balanced crisp comedy with the darker moments in Over the Tavern. Uh, that's true, but you know, I, I still have a hard time with this play. Not your play, is nope. it? Okay. Here's what's coming up for the next two weeks in the St. Louis area for theater all around the region. First, The Dinner Detective at the Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Murder Mystery Dinner Show through July 27th. Murder in Mayberry at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theater. That runs through July 17th. Flaming Saddles at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theater. That runs from May 17th through July 28th. Salt, Root, and Row continues at Upstream Theater through May 12th. Biloxi Blues continues at the Clayton Community Theater through May 12th. And Mamma Mia runs at the Licking Glass Playhouse in Lebanon, Illinois through May 12th. Nice work if you can get it continues at the Kirkwood Theater Guild through May 12th. Over the Tavern continues at the Theater Guild of Webster Groves through May 11th. The Night of the Iguana runs at the Tennessee Williams Festival in St. Louis through May 19th. Death Tax is playing at Mustard Seed Theater through May 19th. Dear Mr. Williams is at the Tennessee Williams Festival from May 10th through the 11th. Medea's Farewell Play Tour runs at the Fox Theater from the 10th through the 12th. Mamma Mia will be at the Alton Little Theater in Alton, Illinois from the 10th through the 19th of May. Disney's Freaky Friday will be at Curtains Up Theater Company in Edwardsville, Illinois from May 10th through the 12th. A lovely Sunday for Creve Corps will be playing at the Tennessee Williams Festival St. Louis from May 11th through the 19th. Come From Away plays at the Fox Theater from May 14th through the 26th. Nina Simone, Four Women, plays at the Black Rep from May 15th through June 2nd. The 2019 Festival of New Plays runs at Tesseract Theater from May 15th through the 26th. Shoshana Bean plays at the Cabaret Project on May 15th and the 16th. Open Mic Night will be at the Cabaret Project on May 15th. I Now Pronounce will be at the New Jewish Theater May 16th through June 2nd. Exit Laughing will be playing at the Alpha Players from May 17th through the 26th. Smoke on the Mountain will be at KTK Productions from May 17th through the 26th. Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus will be at the Playhouse at Westport Plaza from May 17th through the 18th. Recipes for Ice will be playing at the Kirkwood Theater Guild on May 17th. And Plays on the Menu will be at Lion's Paw Theater Company from May 21st through the 22nd. 
We'll be watching some of these productions from our two seats on the aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts about this theater and this program and for items for the calendar. Send them to Two on the Aisle, HEC Media, 3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044, or by email to TOTA at HECTV.org. Join us next time on Cable in the Web for Tennessee Williams and for comedy bitter and sweet. We'll see you then. This episode of Two on the Isles producer was Bob Wilcox. The associate producer is Jerry Kowarski. HEC media producer is Paul Langdon. And our hosts this week were Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski. HEC television director is Rick Rebelke. Segment editors and videography was performed by Carrie Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rod Milam. Our audio this week was by Paul Langdon. Associate producers and studio camera operators are Carrie Marks and Ben Smith. Set and lighting was by Paul Langdon, Carrie Marks, and Ben Smith. And our theme music was by Daniel McGowan. HEC technical support is by Jane Ballou. And HEC media assistant producer, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milam. Two on the Isle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Don't forget, you can find all things Two on the Isle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Isle, and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Isle podcast. We'll see you next time. This is an HEC Media podcast.